0: All right, how's everybody doing? Yeah. Yeah. Let me see here. All right, thank you, Roy. All right, it's good to be here tonight. Uh, all right, let me see some of your faces. How many students are from universities in America? They're from American colleges, all right. about so, uh, half of y'all. Okay, Any Any from uh, <laughs> text? That's America. <laughs> you guys still see yourself as a different country? <laughs> How about Asia? From uh, Indonesia, Philippines? <coughs> Malaysia. <laughs> Malaysia. All right, we got Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, any other uh, universities? Anyone from Europe? Some European campuses? Okay, maybe one person. Any Australian? We have Aussies. All right, we have Aussie here. All right, very good. Very good, very good. And Canadians. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are there any Canadians from Canadian universities? I didn't know Yonsei did uh exchange with Canadian universities. You know, <laughs> considering you know Canada's standard of you know education, I just didn't. I'm, playing, I'm playing. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing. I love Canadians. I love y'all. You know, y'all, y'all sit up there north and you guys are peaceful and quiet and and pretend to be Americans when you make it big in America. And we love Canada. We love Canada. All right. Okay, very good. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight. Yeah, I want to encourage everybody to keep your Bible open throughout my message tonight. Because you're going to be able to get a lot more out of the message if you're able to with your own eyes read the scriptures that I am preaching from. Alright, very good. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 14 to verse 1 of chapter 3. Alright, and I'm going to read from the NIV, because I believe a lot of you in here probably have the NIV version of the Bible, is that correct? All right, we're from the NIV. Anybody have a new King James in here? We got some new King James. Anybody got the NLT? All right, no, okay, good. We'll just read from the NIV, all right. Okay, let's read from verse 14 to verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, what don't we? Why don't, why don't I read a verse and you guys read the next verse? And I'll begin with verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You guys, go. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right. Mere infants in Christ. Hey, you guys might want to set up a mic pointed to the audience just so that uh, other people listen to this message. It doesn't sound like I'm, I'm by myself. <laughs> yeah, it's in the, it didn't capture that laughter just now. All right, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. For, for the blessing of other people that might listen to this later. All right. Those texts here... Uh, <clears throat> If you are okay with underlining your Bible, I want you to circle the word spiritual wherever it appears here. It says, The man without the Spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You might want to circle that word. The spiritual man, circle spiritual there, makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. And verse 1 of chapter 3, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual. Circle that word spiritual. It's going to be a key word that we're going to look at here tonight. Now, I understand the theme of the retreat is called shift. Everybody say shift. shift. Okay. And with the opening message, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, I hope that tonight I can bring a very crucial and key shift into your minds and into your hearts, which I believe will set you up for a lifetime of rich and abundant blessings. All right, so you guys have to get this message here tonight because it's going to shift you up into a whole nother level. Now, I'm going to look at this word spiritual. Spiritual. There's a funny video on YouTube that I used to watch with Jamie Foxx, and um, Jamie Foxx is uh, in the video playing some music because he's very musically talented, and uh, he's singing some songs, and uh, he talks about how when he was growing up uh, in his family, uh, his mom didn't allow, the, the family did not allow him to sing any songs except the ones that were spiritual. You know, and so uh, I think he sings um, the Brady, uh, not not the um, the Brady Bunch. You guys know the Brady Bunch. Are You guys too 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 young to know the Brady. You guys know the Brady Bunch, right? There's a story of an ugly lady <laughs> who was raising three girls of her own. <clears throat> Man, I used to love that show, Brady Bunch. You know, I couldn't relate to anything that's going on in there. But you know, I just thought this is the way that uh, you know that that white people live. <laughs> is you know you want to get an idea of how they live? You look, you watch the Brady Bunch. But in the end of Jamie Foxx video, uh, he you know he was like, well you know it wasn't very romantic to sing you know spiritual songs. So I had to take all these songs and turn them, learn how to turn them into spirituals. So he sings the Brady Bunch song, but he he turns it around to a spiritual song. Anyway, um. The reason why I mentioned that example is because uh, I'm not sure how you see that word spiritual, but tonight I just want to help to define it using the word of God, what it means to you. Now, I want you to ask your neighbor right now, what does it mean to be spiritual? Ask them that question right now. What does it mean to be, what does it mean to be spiritual to you? To Jamie Foxx, the word spiritual, it meant a particular music genre. You see, African American history, I studied African American history, music history, African American music history in NYU. And really cool thing that I learned is that the genre called spirituals, you know, it really just came out of the cotton fields in which a lot of these African slaves are forced to work. And uh, a lot of times they were not permitted to have an education or to be able to read, but they would secretly uh, get a hold of ways to learn how to read so that they could read the Bible. And as the Christian, there was a Christian movement that was happening among the slaves. uh, They were not permitted to sing the traditional hymns and psalms that uh, a lot of Europeans knew. So they came up with their own music, and and one cool thing about spirituals are, uh, spirituals, almost all of them, can be played on just the black keys of the piano. Do you guys know that? Bet y'all didn't know that. Do you know that "Amazing Grace" is not a hymn; it's a spiritual. And if you want to play Amazing Grace, all you do is stick on the black keys. Because it, it's a pentatonic scale. A scale with a little bit of minor, you know, kind of sad, bluesy kind of feel. Um, anyway, spiritual is a very interesting music genre if you ever study it. And uh, to Jamie Foxx and to a lot of African Americans that were spiritual, they equate it sometimes to this music genre. But I want to go much deeper than just the music genre. And I want to define what it really means to be spiritual. Because my message simply is tonight. Is that I want all, each and every one of you to be spiritual. I don't know what your Christian life has been like. But tonight I want to shift you into being more spiritual. Because that's what it's all about. Christian life is about being spiritual. If you're not spiritual, you're not really being a good Christian. And tonight I'm going to cover three aspects of being spiritual. All right. And I'm going to cover these three aspects. I'm going give to you, give you the three points right now. Just to help you with compartment to mentalizing this message so it's easy to remember all right three points is very easy to remember if i get to four points you won't remember any of the points but the way the human brain works i study psychology you keep it in groups of three it's very easy to remember so even if you if you don't want to remember even if you want to try to forget this message it's going to be hard to do that because i broke it up for you into threes all right i'm going to show you three aspects of being spiritual tonight number one Being spiritual means being mature. It's the first aspect. Being spiritual means being mature. The second aspect is being spiritual means being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being spiritual means being filled with the Holy Spirit. And third, being spiritual means operating... In spiritual gifts. I'm going to prove that to you through the scriptures. Being spiritual means operating in spiritual gifts. Alright, so if, you, if you're all ready for these three points, let me hear you say yeah. yeah. Alright, here we go. Being spiritual means being mature. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth... And he says, brothers, and when he says brothers, he means the sisters as well, by the way. <laughs> brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Okay, let me just stop right there. What do you think of when you think of the word infant? You think of babies. What else do you think of? Milk. You think of milk. I think of spilled milk. Not just milk, but spilled milk. Cause you know, babies, they just, they just, you know, they don't really drink milk. They just, like, they, they, uh, put on milk, like makeup. Just, they just, you know, they wear milk. Uh, what else do you think of when you think of infants? Diapers. Diapers. Why? Cause they poo and pee wherever they want, whenever they want. I mean, I mean, you can change their diaper and then 30 seconds later, You got to change it again. All right. They're just giving you little increments, you know, because babies just don't know better. You know, babies, when you think of the word infant, you think of babies because you think well, infant means, you know, pretty much a baby. Right. And so when the apostle Paul uses this word infant to talk about the people at the church of Corinth, it was not a compliment, if anything, it probably was a assessment that the Corinthian church was not comfortable with. You see, one thing you would notice about the church of Corinth, if you studied a little bit about—if you have your NIV Study Bible, if you have the ESV Study Bible—you just read the uh, opening credits of the uh, Book of First Corinthians—and one thing you will know about the church of Corinth is. Church of Corinth was a very supernatural church. Meaning that they were really into the spiritual gifts. They were all up into the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, miracles, uh, supernatural signs and wonders. I mean, they were all over this stuff. That's just what they were good at. That's just what they they really enjoyed. And in that kind of culture, most of these people thought because we are experiencing these manifestations of, these supernatural manifestations of God, we must be spiritual. But when Paul writes to them, he doesn't give them that assessment. Instead, he begins to point out things that were happening in the Corinthian church that really gave evidence that they weren't really spiritual, but they were just infants. And some of the examples are uh, the believers at the church Corinth they were taking each other to court and suing each other. Have you guys ever been a part of a church where you saw lawsuits among people within the church? Yeah? Man, that's stuff, man, that's just, you just shake your head. I mean, when you see, like, people, Michael Jackson's family, you know, suing uh, his doctor, you know, that, that lawsuit's going on right now. You know, we kind of watch on TV and we kind of get some entertainment out of it. But we don't get any source of entertainment from watching people within the church sue each other. Especially, you know, I have a I have a story from I grew up in Philly, and the church that I grew up in during my pre high school years was this Methodist church down in down in um down in the ghetto section of Olney. And uh, but you know, most of the people that came to church were from the suburbs, except me. I was like one of the few people that actually lived in the neighborhood. Everybody else came from the suburbs. And uh, this church, after I left for college, um, I heard that this church had like about four or five church splits. Now, this is not unusual, especially if you're from Virginia or from Maryland. A lot of Korean churches there, you know, every two years they have a church split. And, and sometimes they think that's healthy. You know, just church split. You know, you want to grow a church, you do a church split. And most people think of a church plant, but in Virginia, sometimes, unfortunately, it's a church split. But anyway, this church split so many times, and one of my friends from childhood, her parents were still going to one of the church splits. And what happened was, one day, the elder noticed that there were a lot of roaches inside the building. So he started doing roach spray all over the building. And in this one particular room, there was a vent and that vent was connected to another room in which a whole bunch of uh, female uh, deaconesses, they were gathered together for a prayer meeting. But these deaconesses were not very fond of the new pastor. And their prayer meeting was actually, they were probably praying to get this pastor out. We don't know what the pa- prayer meeting was about. But he he did some you know, bug spray into the vent. And a few months later they sued that elder for premeditated murder. Isn't that crazy? And both sides had to spend thousands of dollars to try to either prosecute or defend the case. Over rote spray. Bug spray. I mean, if I sprayed some bug spray in your face, you probably wouldn't accuse me of premeditated murder. You know what I mean? That's the kind of stuff that was going on in that church. And the church of Corinth was experiencing similar things. There were lawsuits. There was also sexual immorality. But it wasn't just people sleeping around. It was people sleeping around with like their stepmother. You know, like you have a father. He gets divorced. He gets remarried. And then you check out the new person that your dad married. And you're like, man, she's cute. And then, yeah, that's what I'm saying right here. That is nasty. Right? That's the kind of stuff that was happening up in the church of Corinth. So you have to understand, there was a lot of supernatural things happening. But there was also a lot of foolishness and immaturity. So what does Paul say at the beginning of the letter? He says, I cannot address you as spiritual, but as mere infants in Christ. What does that mean? In Paul's mind, being spiritual means being mature. It means that even if somebody does something terrible to you within the church, you don't take them to court. You take it before the throne of God and you forgive them. Even if the woman that your your dad just remarried is really, really cute, you let it go. <laughs> Amen? That's what it means to be spiritual. It means to be mature. And... uh that's one aspect of being spiritual. If you go to Galatians 6.1, I'll read that for you. It says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual shall restore him gently. You see that? Even in that verse, it's very implicit. To be spiritual means to be mature. Because Paul would never tell somebody who's immature, go and talk to your brother who's caught in a sin. You know, he, I would, as a pastor of New Philly, I will never instruct some of our younger leaders. You know, hey, you know, um, one of our brothers, you know, he he messed up this past week. Uh, you know, he was, um, he's a leader with the church, but, you know, he went and he, he slept with a prostitute. And he smoked some weed while he was at it. In fact, smoking the weed made him want to sleep with the prostitute. Anyway, man, he's just, he's messed up. All right. And if there was somebody in that situation, I wouldn't go to a new immature young baby believer and be like, hey, I want you to go and talk to him about his sin. And I want you to restore him gently. Right. You would never give that instruction. Right. So what, what does Paul say? If someone is caught in a sin, then you who are spiritual, meaning you who are mature, only mature people are encouraged to go and confront people about their sin. So, first aspect of being spiritual means being mature. Do you guys want to be spiritual in here? Let's go on. My second point. Being spiritual means being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, The Greek word for spiritual Is pneumatikos. Everybody say pneumatikos. Okay. Spiritual pneumatikos. Now, something interesting, let me tell you about the Greek is that Greek word in the very beginning of, of the Greek word is pneuma. P N E U M A. P N E U M A. That word pneuma by itself is translated spirit. In the New Testament, okay, because the New Testament is written in Greek. Okay, just in case y'all didn't know, New Testament is written in Greek. Old Testament is written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. Okay, all right. So, Numa means spirit. And something that's interesting is that in the Greek, the word pneuma you can't tell if it means spirit with a small c, uh, small uh, small s. I can't spell. Or Numa Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit with a big S. Okay, that distinguish that you have to be able to distinguish that through context. All right, isn't that interesting? All right, okay. I just want to put that out there. Now, I'm saying being spiritual means being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you can't be spiritual unless you have the Spirit. And I'm not talking about just your personal spirit, like your spirit. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. By very definition, you can't be pneumaticos without the Holy Pneuma. The Holy Spirit of God. If you're not filled with the Spirit of God, man, you, you ain't kidding nobody. You are not spiritual. In fact, in the New Testament church, if you came around and you were like, I know the Bible very well. I have a bachelor's degree in Bible study. I have a master's degree. I have a doctorate degree and I have a I have, a, I, have an, I have more degrees than that and you know, I got more letters than a mailman. I don't know. I, I did that. Um and you came and you were like, "I know the scripture inside out." And then I'm a spiritual man. New Testament church people, they'd be like, "All right, that's great. You know the Bible very well. All right, are you filled with the Holy Spirit, though?" And you are like, "Yeah." <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> or they'd be like, "Man, you ain't no, you ain't spiritual, man. Come over here. Let us pray for you so you can get filled with the Spirit." <laughs> okay, you can't be spiritual unless you are filled with the Spirit. You can't be pneumaticos without the pneuma of God. Amen. I mean, it do not make no sense because you know why? Then you can say the new age people are pneumaticos. You know, they're all about spiritual things. And you know, in the new age movement, they were they use the word spiritual in a totally different way, don't they? You know, sometimes I was uh, doing ministry at Columbia University. Actually, this didn't happen at Columbia University. Columbia University people are very like, they're very smart yeah, very like intellectual. And a lot of times when I evangelize to them, I would have to talk to them. <laughs> uh, we'll talk things out. But when I was at NYU, I was an NYU student. I went to New York University. Man, we have to evangelize sometimes in in Washington Square Park. Okay? And I went to school before Mayor Giuliani cleaned up Washington Square Park. Okay? So my freshman year, I used to walk on the north side or the south side of the park and people would be like, "Hama hama." Hama, okay, y'all don't know what that means, right? That means, do you want some weed? Okay. There are so many drug dealers all over Washington Square Park. But more than drug dealers, there were drug users. There were more drug users than there were drug dealers. And sometimes you evangelize the people, man, and they're just like, they are tripping. They're like, ah, man, yeah, I'm all spiritual. I'm all about the spiritual. Let's talk about <laughs> spiritual things. And you be like, yeah, 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 yes. Wait a minute. Yeah, I got this spirit guide. Yeah, the spirit guide helps me. Man, I get all stressed out sometimes, but my spirit, my spirit guide comes and helps me and gives me knowledge and the wisdom and, and, and hints and clues. And, and I just, I'm, all my fear just melts away. Man, I'm all about spiritual. Tell me about that. Right, And you're just, you're just like, wow, they are talking about something totally different. <laughs> New Age movement likes to use that word. But that word doesn't belong to the New Age movement. That belongs to the kingdom of God. The word spiritual is a wholly set-apart word. But the problem is the church has lost what it means to be spiritual. So much to the degree... That the New Age movement defines the word spiritual better than the church does. The New Age movement is more in touch with the spirit realm than most Western Christians are. Now I can't say that for all the Asians in here. I don't know what your Asian churches were like. But if you went to like a traditional Baptist church, this might be your story as well. Most Western Christians, man, they have forfeited the idea of being spiritual to the New Agers. And then on top of that, they are so scared of the New Agers that they are scared of the word spiritual. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so if you ever come into a church and you start talking about being spiritual and being filled with the spirit spirit, And getting in touch uh, with your spiritual sensitivities, or you talk about things like the gift of prophecy, and some churches they will immediately begin to accuse you of being a new ager. But here's the thing, man. What the church has is the authentic spiritual, and what the new age has is a counterfeit spiritual. The New Age spiritual is not a nourishing spiritual, it is a deceptive one. You know, you know what's really cool and encouraging is I've watched documentaries uh by a guy named Darren Wilson, right? Uh made this documentary called Finger of God. I don't know if you guys saw that this semester. And he also made another documentary called Furious Love. And in this documentary, uh Darren Wilson goes to um new age like conventions he goes to boston's witchcraft convention how many of you guys have ever been to a witchcraft or a new age convention raise your hand roland you actually have been oh you're kidding okay and don't be ashamed if that was you you know that's your past it's okay okay i don't i don't think any of you have been to one right i mean it's kind of scary to even think about going to one But the believers in this documentary, they are so filled with the Spirit of God and so filled with faith that they have more faith that if they encounter somebody at a witchcraft convention that the witchcraft people are going to be changed more than they have faith in that fact that they're going to get contaminated, that they step right into these conventions and pray for people. So that there's, there's these ministers in, in uh, one West Coast fair that he went to, uh, witchcraft fair. And he's, he's just praying for this lady. And this lady has been getting all these different kinds of spirit guides from all the different stations and all the different uh, you know, booths that they have set up there. And then she approaches this one guy and he's like, you know, I can tell you, I, I can uh, uh, help. I can pray for you and I can tell you uh, what your future is going to be like. You know, he's talking about the gift of prophecy. Not fortune telling. But it looks like to get the prophet, uh, it looks like fortune telling to her, because that's all she's known. So she's like, all right, let me hear what you have to say. And he starts to prophesy, and she starts to realize, man, this guy is prophesying things very accurately that, that, are, that are the deepest, you know, that are, that's within the heart of hearts that she's holding on to that she hasn't told anybody about. And then she starts to open up, and then he starts to, to preach the gospel to her, and he starts to pray deliverance over her right there at the New Age Convention. And she starts like slithering like a snake. That gets crazy. Alright, you gotta watch the movie. Man, that's what I that's what I want to see more of. It's Christians that define what it means to be spiritual and are not afraid to even confront new agers that think they know what it means to be spiritual. But by the power of the Spirit of God setting such new age people free from the counterfeit and bringing them into the authentic. Being filled, being spiritual means being filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. How many of you in here, you've ever been drunk? Okay. A lot of the um, volunteer staff are uh, raising their hands. Wow, you guys, the, the rest of the students, you guys are very innocent. You guys never been drunk? You guys are very pure, either very pure or very good liars. All right, I'll confess that I've been drunk in my lifetime. Okay? Just once. Once. Other times I was like tipsy, but I don't think it was quite, it was more crunked than it was drunk. Anyway, I didn't, anyway, but this one time, man, I drank so much. I I went to like some Korean International Student Organization orientation out at NYU. Okay? You don't want to go to their orientation, they don't really cover anything to do with their organization. They just make you drink, and um, they had all these Crown royales. It was like hard liquor, and uh, Crown Royale or Royal—I don't know how to say it. All right, I only saw it once in my lifetime, but it came in these nice purple bags, and you know. And all I knew was each bottle cost about 140 bucks in that club. So I was like, oh, what a waste of money. But at that time, as a freshman at NYU, I was working out hard. I was jacked. I had these huge traps, huge neck muscles, huge chest muscles. man, I was big. It's really big. And so I, w- I had my protein shake with me at that club. Let me tell you right now, man, I was, I was committed not to drink, right? But as the night wore on, you know, I noticed that the, the older upperclassmen, they just looked really sad sitting at the same table with me and my friend who were refusing to drink. They just looked really sad because all the other tables, they were laughing. (laughs) I came from Seattle. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking about going (laughs) pre-med. They're laughing at everything. And at our table, they just look so sad. These guys aren't drinking. And so it was a combination of feeling bad to the upperclassmen and Feeling so Akawa man. These hundred dollars bottles of lard liquor. No one's drinking it. So I decided to give in and just take one shot. But the thing with, with this, in Korean fob culture, Korean, Korean culture, is when you get a drink, you know, a lot of young people think they have to do one shot. So, you know, we, just, we didn't know the Korean culture, so we just one shot and we put it down. And the upper that you think to them, that indicates that you're a good drinker and that you enjoy drinking. I said, so "Oh, 잘 마시네. And right away, they pour you another one. And so we're thinking, all right, maybe after the second shot, they won't pour us another one. So we do one shot again, and put it down. And like, 진짜 잘 마신다. And They pour you another one, and then they order another bottle. Anyway, next thing I knew, man, I had about like five or six shots within 15 minutes (laughs) and it was time to go and my sister was an upperclassman and she was like why did you drink so much and and i get in the elevator and i'm like whoa (laughs) i do not feel good and i went out to the streets and me and my friend we started doing push-ups on the sidewalk (laughs) we're like oh no we can't waste the workout we had yesterday my sister's like you know what I have to go say hi to another friend he's at the can you, can you guys just uh, you know just come with me to the Norebang so we go to the Dame, and then there's some other upp- upperclassmen he's like oh you're Aaron's sister my sister's name's Aaron by the way uh, oh you're Aaron's sister oh you gotta come in here and have a drink <laughs> oh Aaron's brother <laughs> I, mean, I think I had a couple drinks here tonight um and so I go into the Notepang and he starts pouring whiskey. And I, I have no idea that these drinks are like 30 to 40% by volume alcohol. And I just drink and uh, I just had one or two shots of whiskey. And the next thing I know, I woke up <laughs> in my sister's apartment. And I barely remember how, to, how I got into the cab, how I went up the stairs. And then how I ended up throwing up all over myself. Because when I woke up, it was just vomit all over my chest, all over the sheets. But I was so drunk, I was like, this stinks. And I just went right back to sleep. After that experience, I realized that I didn't like... Drinking that much. And I didn't really enjoy being drunk because the hangover next day was nasty. And if it wasn't for my sister that night, I might have done more stupid things than just doing, you know, push, push ups on the sidewalk. And for a lot of young people that get to NYU, they don't have an older sister. And so they do end up doing stupid things. I knew freshmen that had alcohol poisoning or that they, they overdosed on drugs and almost died. So many stories throughout the semester because they didn't have an older sister that was looking out for them. Because you know what happens when you get drunk? The Bible tells us. It leads to debauchery. It leads to debauchery. And I don't know if you know what debauchery is. It's just an old word for meaning You end up waking up with somebody next to you that you don't know who they are. You end up hurting yourself physically or end up in the hospital. You end up crashing your car. Getting arrested for DUI. Doing and saying stupid things that appears on Facebook the next day. (laughs) That's debauchery. Things that when you are sober, you will never get involved with. But when you're drunk, it's... Easy and natural for you to do. You see, Satan knows that he can't get you to do certain things when you're sober. So he pulls down your defenses and makes you vulnerable through alcohol. And what the Apostle Paul says is, back then, people used to get drunk back then too. People used to do stupid things back then as well. And he says, you know what, y'all? Don't get drunk on wine. In fact, you know, Paul and, you know, even myself, I don't think there's anything evil about alcohol. If you can drink responsibly, drink moderately, you know, you want to try enjoy a beer with your football game or you want to go get some wine on your romantic dinner. All right. You don't have to feel like a sinner for doing that. All right. Even Jesus, the implication was when he was hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. Guess what he was doing? We don't know. But he was accused of drinking. I think Jesus drank. (laughs) He turned water into wine. You know, if it was inherently evil, he would be like, I will never do such a thing. But you know, he was like Alright, bring some water. Bring jugs of it. I mean, I mean Jesus, we just need a couple of little bottles. Just a few more bottles. He's like, no, bring the, bring the tubs. <laughs> bring them huge things. Fill it up to the brim. Right? Anyway, I don't, I don't think it's inherently evil. But one thing that the Apostle Paul noticed is when you get drunk on wine, it leads to debauchery. But when you get filled with the Spirit, it produces a spiritual man. When you get filled with the Spirit, a poor fisherman that's uneducated he can get up on the day of Pentecost and preach in front of thousands and see 3,000 people get saved in one day. Hey, I preached in front of hundreds. I preached even in front of... Have I preached in front of thousands? I'm trying to think right now. My wife has. Erin has preached in front of thousands at a at an Indian uh, boarding school or something like that. She preached in front of like 5,000 kids. But then, you know, there were kids. So I was like, you can have it, hun. <laughs> No, I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. We get. She was the first choice and she got it and she preached in front of thousands. I can't say I can't say if I preach in front of thousands. I think I was close though. But anyway, can you imagine your first sermon? 3,000 people getting saved. And you're a fisherman. You're not a seminary uh, graduate. You're not a Bible scholar. You're a fisherman. You know what that, the equivalent of that too is today? I don't know, the exterminator. You know, the people that come around and bug spray, you know, and you probably look down on. And uh, Exterminator's here. And you're like, all right, hurry up, man. Come in here. All right. We got bugs over here. Bugs. Hey, hurry. Hey, hey, don't touch that. Don't touch that. <laughs> all, right, all, right, all right. All right. You're done? All right, get out. You know? The exterminator gets up and preaches this amazing message and 3,000 people get saved in one day. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. When you get filled with the spirit, it turns, it transforms a man. Because the control center is no longer that person. It's no longer that person's psyche. No longer that person's soul. The control center now is taken up. The driver's seat is now taken up by the very spirit of God. The power of God goes out. And turns people into spiritual men and women. The third point is being spiritual means operating in spiritual gifts. Being spiritual means operating in spiritual gifts. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, does somebody know when, what time I started? What time did I start? It was like 9 o'clock? It was around 9? Okay. Alright, good. Alright. So I have like... Hour and a half left, right? Preach it. I'm I'm playing, I'm playing. Hey, hey, turn there. Hurry up so I can keep going with my message. (laughs) Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Romans chapter 1, verse 11. It's the Apostle Paul. And he writes and he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you. Strong. Somebody say strong. Strong. You want to be strong? You need to get some spiritual gifts. I long to see you so that I can teach you five seminars. Nope. I long to see you so that I can have five hours in the prayer room together. Nope. Apostle Paul says, I long to see you. One of the first things I want to do when I see you is impart to you a spiritual gift to make you strong do you know spiritual gifts make you strong some people try to argue they have a paradigm where they argue spiritual gifts are like a crutch only weak Christians they need these spiritual gifts because they don't know the Bible enough and they have to depend on spiritual gifts like, a, like a, they, they kind of say it they they um Man, there's this really smart guy that I really respect, but he has that paradigm. And he he actually calls the gift of tongues a a spiritual gift of weakness. And he's a very smart guy. I won't mention his name. I really respect him. But I just disagree. Every spiritual gift makes you strong. And if you're already strong, it's going to make you stronger. Because the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy later in life, And he says, fan fan, fan into flame, (laughs) fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. So when he says gift of God there, I don't think he's talking about your basketball gift or your creative writing gift, like a natural ability. I don't think he's talking about that. He's talking about something that can be transferred from one person to another through the laying on of hands. You You know what it means when you lay hands on somebody? It's called impartation. That's the word that's being used here in Romans chapter 1 verse 11. I long to come to you so that I may impart. Spiritual gifts are not taught, they're caught. You need to get it by impartation, by the laying on of hands. Not through a thesis or through a sermon. Although those things could set you up to receive it. You get it through impartation. We need spiritual gifts in the church. You know why? One reason you need spiritual gifts in the church? Because our fight is not against flesh and blood, the apostle Paul said. But it's against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know what? All those new age spirits, you you know what they are? You know what? All those idols, those idols are not just blocks of wood and stone. That seems to be able to have the capability to keep a whole nation under bondage. The apostle uh, Paul actually points it out. Those are demons. When you sacrifice to those idols, you sacrifice to demons, the apostle Paul says. Those new age spirits, they're demons. And you cannot defeat spiritual forces unless you have spiritual weapons. you can't use a physical cross like like you might have seen in the movie exorcism or or, or one of those weird exorcism movies like there's some of them scary don't watch them they'll freak you out don't watch them i know i'm like tempting you to watch it now don't do it but in those in those things man they got the, the holy water you know what are, what are you like fighting vampires you know holy water you know the, the, the wooden cross You know, they have a Bible and they're like, in Jesus' name, get out. (laughs) Now, can I tell you, in the early days of New Philly's ministry, about five years ago, we saw our first cases of deliverance ministry. Where people were not themselves. For four hours straight, they talked different. They have supernatural strength. Okay. I don't want to freak you out. But our deliverance ministry cases started to open up about five years ago. And let me just let me admit to you a mistake that I made. In those early days, I tried to use some natural weapons. I was just frustrated, man. It was like on the third hour. We're like yelling and praying and commanding them out, but they weren't going anywhere. I was like, give me your your necklace. Give me the cross, you know. I take the cross necklace and put it on their forehead. Get out now! How about that? Get out! I'll press order! And then people were like, "Ah, I don't want to imitate it too much. I'm going to scare you tonight. I don't want to do that. But anyway, man, in order to defeat spiritual forces, we need spiritual weapons. And here's the good news. Second... Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 to 5 tells us that though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, according to the natural world. But our weapons, we have weapons that are mighty through God for pulling down strongholds. We have weapons from God, but I'm telling you right now, they are not natural weapons, they are spiritual weapons. And if you don't get connected with spiritual gifts and spiritual weapons, you're not going to be able to put to flight spiritual forces. Somebody's going to come down with a weird stomach ache during your mission trip, and you're going to give them alcohol seltzer, and they're going to drink my like three cups of alcohol seltzer, and their stomach's still in pain. And then the pain starts to move into their leg, and you're like, whoa, what do I give them for that? <laughs> and you're missing it all. It's not a stomach ache. It is a demon spirit. By the way, what I just mentioned was a true story. Back in February, one of our sisters, we were in India, and we had a wonderful mission trip, powerful mission trip, a lot of deliverance, a lot of uh, young people getting set free. On the last night, she came down with a stomach ache, woke me up at 2 in the morning. Made me angry. Because we had a flight to catch the next day. Woke me up at 2 in the morning. But she was in so much pain. She was pounding her stomach. And so we just, I asked her, did you drink some milk or something? (laughs) I have some Pepsid in my bag. You want some Pepsid? I might help out. But the more we were with her, the more we realized that pain started to move. It went up into her mouth, into her teeth. Okay, I don't don't know about your stomach aches. (laughs) The ones I know about, they don't move into your teeth. Then it started to go into her arm, then to the other arm. And every time we prayed, it kept moving. We had to pray with her for two and a half hours. But you know what? We were not going to take her to some ghetto hospital in India (laughs) and miss our flight. I was determined, you know what, with our teammates, I made everybody wake up too. I was like, get the brothers! They can't miss out on this action. (laughs) They all woke up, they came in, and we prayed, and we prayed for two and a half hours. And the final but there were uh, a lot of uh, deliverance that took place. It was just an attack of the enemy to scare us, right? And then the final straw was reading Psalm 18. And guess who got that? Your campus director, Pastor Aaron. She said, "Hun, hunt. I think I, I'm supposed to read Psalm 18. I get that in my spirit real clear. I said, all right, all right, honey. Be, after I'm done singing this song, you know, I thee. I got a cross. I won't use it. I exalt thee. Get out there. (laughs) All right, honey, why don't you try? Anyway, man, we're at the end of all our energy. She reads Psalm 18. By the time she reads the last line, our sister says, it's all gone. It is all gone. We need spiritual weapons to fight spiritual forces. I'm telling you right now. And so here, Apostle Paul, he knew all about being spiritual. So he writes to the Romans. He writes to uh, the church in Romans and and he says, I long to impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Let me tell you something about gifts, man. I love gifts. My love language, my receiving love language is gifts. Anyone else in here? You feel most loved when you get gifts? (laughs) Everybody remember our names here? Our our birthdays, check Facebook. Make us feel loved. Christmas is coming up too. You got two chances to make us feel loved. Hey, I'll give you words. I'll give you plenty of words. If words are your love gift, I, you know, love language, I'll, I'll give you words. Acts of service. The Emmaus staff will give you acts of service. Anyway, my love language is gifts. But do you know what a spiritual gift is? We know about birthday gifts, Christmas gifts. Valentine's Day gifts, but do you know what a spiritual gift is? When Paul begins his letter to the church of Corinth, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember, I told you that the church of Corinth was very supernatural. There are a lot of supernatural things already happening, right? Check this out, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord. So it's very clear from the beginning of the letter, these guys at Corinth, they were all about the supernatural. They have spiritual gifts. But the church of Corinth, they were spiritual in the sense of spiritual gifts, having and operating the gifts, but they were not spiritual in the sense of being mature. Okay? So we have to understand you know, all these aspects, it defines what it means to be truly spiritual. Now, what are spiritual gifts? Okay. Can anyone in here, besides the staff, can you guys, by memory, tell me the nine spiritual gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Anybody? Okay, good. Let's turn there. Let me educate you right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to briefly. This is not a message about spiritual gifts. I'm going to briefly cover them. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. It says, Now to each one, chapter 12, verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. That's number one. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. That's two. To another, faith by the same Spirit. That's three. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. That's four. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. That's nine. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each one just as He determines. What are spiritual gifts? There are nine that is mentioned here by the Apostle Paul. Now, we, we don't know if he's trying to give us a comprehensive list. So there may be more spiritual gifts, but these are the most common ones. right? These are the ones that Paul definitely did not want to exclude. And if you really want to easily remember, you can think of it as three categories. Gifts of Revelation... Gifts of power and gifts of utterance. All right. So there's nine here. Uh, The gift of the word, the message of wisdom, the word of wisdom. A lot of people say the word of wisdom. There's a gift of word of knowledge. There's the gift of faith. There is the gift of healings, the gifts of healing, Um, gift of working miracles, gift of prophecy, gift of distinguishing between spirits. Gift of speaking in other tongues and gift of interpretation of tongues. How many gifts are there? Okay. I want y'all to get that. Y'all should circle that in your Bible. This is where you find the list of the nine most common spiritual gifts that the Apostle Paul wrote about. You should memorize this. Because let's say you get a spiritual gift. Let's say a man or a woman of God lays hands on you and you actually get activated in a spiritual gift and it makes you strong, but you don't know what it is. You know, there are people that get spiritual gifts and they start tripping out because they don't know what it is. You know, there are people that get the gift of discerning between spirits and this gift manifests in such creative ways, it freaks people out. You know, there are people that have this gift, they can't turn it off. So they go into a room and they would start to see things. Some people will actually see like little demons hanging on people's shoulders or, or little um, animal artifacts like talons stuck on people's backs. And then you ask them, is something wrong with your back? And they're like, yeah, I've chronic back pain for the last 10 years. I had a pastor friend. He was in Hawaii. He went to a big crusade. He had back pains, right? And there was a line of uh, altar ministers. He goes up to the first person and the person starts to pray. And he says, the, she said, I see black talons on your back. Is there something wrong with your back? And he's like, yeah, my back's been hurting me for the last two years. It's chronic pain. I can't even bend down right now. It's been so much pain. Are you going to help me? And she said, no, nah, I don't have that gift. Go to the next person. So he's like, what is this? Goes to the next person, and then the girl whispers in, their, in, his, in the other guy's ear and says, this guy's got black talons in the back. I think that's a demon spirit that's latched onto his back. When you pray for deliverance, I think he'll get set free. So the guy says, all right, be free in Jesus' name. Bend down. He's like, what are you talking? You didn't do anything. <laughs> so just bend down. So he bends down. And he's like, oh, the pain's kind of still. Wait, wait, still, no, wait. Oh, hallelujah, God! <laughs> and then the guy said, you, "Are you filled with the Spirit?" And, I, and he's like, what, "What does that mean?" So like, go to the next guy. <laughs> so they had like a they had like a manufacturing uh, line. That's awesome. I, when you can clearly define people's gifting, I mean, that's an awesome thing to have. But yeah, I mean, some people, man, they have these gifts. They, they're so trippy. They don't know what it is. But if you know what it is. And you get un- under the covering of a mentor that has more experience than you, that has more wisdom than you, have more maturity than you. You need to learn under that person's covering. Don't try to teach yourself, please. That gets real dangerous quick. You know, you know people who teach themselves, you can tell who they are. Because you ask them, what church are you at? And they're like, I'm in the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I have church in front of my computer on the internet. Okay? So where do you do your ministry? I do ministry wherever the Holy Spirit leads me. I, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you meet people like that, all right, keep your distance. People who try to teach themselves this, it gets real polluted real quick. Because let me tell you right now, there's an enemy out there. And if you can isolate somebody who's really well gifted, he can target them, attack them with lies, using their past hurts, traumas, wounds, and put them into bondage so that they misuse their gift or they even abuse their gift. Now, there are people that abuse their gifts to get sexual favors. There's people that use their spiritual gifts to, for their own selfish ambitions. The thing about spiritual gifts are they're irrevocable. The Bible says the gifts of God are irrevocable. The gifts and call of God are irrevocable. Once he gives you a gift, it's up to you whether you're going to steward it or not. Even if you start to abuse that gift, God's not going to be like, now give it back. (laughs) Now he's going to be like, really? Is that really what you're going to do with that? Ah man. And then he starts to send people your way. But if you keep refusing to repent, God may just set you up for judgment. where one day, you just lose it all. So what was happening at the Church of Corinth is they had a lot of supernatural manifestations, but they weren't really spiritual because they had all kinds of immaturity, but not only that, they didn't really know what the gifts were. That's why we have the Corinthian church to thank today. Thank you, Corinthian church, for your ignorance. (laughs) Because if it wasn't for their ignorance, you will be ignorant because Paul Apostle Paul would have never wrote it out. He's like, man, this is just basic stuff. But you know what? These guys here at this church, they really need it. So he spelled it out. Here are nine. Y'all need to study and learn how to operate in these things. So the church of Corinth was spiritual, but not quite spiritual. Because they didn't really know how to operate in these gifts properly. You know, I noticed in many churches today, they like to use 1 Corinthians 13 And the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, to discourage people from pursuing spiritual gifts. The argument goes, forget all the supernatural prophesying and power and healings. You see 1 Corinthians 13? How many of you guys know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about? It's about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Right? You hear it at every wedding, man. People read chapter 13 and then they say, you see this? Let's just focus on love. All we need is love and the Bible. Forget all these supernatural things. All we need is love. So stop, you know, once you have love, then you can pursue the spiritual gifts. I'm telling you right now, this is what a lot of smart churches they do. And they tell you not to pursue spiritual gifts, but to pursue love. Or other churches will say, hey, 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 no more speaking in tongues in the church. Because in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, it teaches that tongues and all spiritual gifts must be exercised in an orderly manner. So guess what? If there's no interpretation for your tongues, then you need to be silent from now on. And there's churches in this city. And that's their ministry philosophy. In LA, in New York, in New Jersey... People that operate in spiritual gifts, this is their approach. But you know, that is a poor exegetical treatment of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Do you know that? Even Mark Driscoll, real smart guy, he doesn't really move in all these spiritual gifts. He does, but he, he really doesn't. He's, he doesn't. He does, but he doesn't. I really respect him. And he even said, a lot of these exegetical treatments of 1 Corinthians 12, 14, 13, and 14, it sickens him. It just completely has nothing to do with what the text said. Check this out. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Look at the first verse right after chapter 13 about love. It says, follow the way of love and, everybody say And. And eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Especially the gift of prophecy. So when a church tries to teach you to choose between the two. Love or spiritual gifts. Love or spiritual gifts. What's it going to be? Of course the Christ thing, Christ thing to do is I love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and love your neighbor. I choose love. Good. Now you're a good Christian. Right? When churches try to force you to choose between spiritual gifts and love, this is an illegitimate choice. The Bible never corners you or confronts you to choose between the two. It actually exhorts us to pursue both. It says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. It's not about having love first and then spiritual gifts later. In fact... One of the most loving things you can do for the people in the body of Christ is to operate in your spiritual gifts. One of the most powerful ways you can show love is to use your spiritual gifts. You know how many people we minister to at New Philly? They are cold and apathetic. A lot of times, um, Pastor Aaron and I, during one of our services, I'll come up to the front and start praying for people. And Pastor Aaron doesn't like to choose them. But I do. I look at people's face. It's not like there's like a big light shining, choose this guy. I look out, you know what I do sometimes? I find the people that looks the most apathetic. The people that are most cold. People that might not even be Christians. And I'll be like, young man over there. Yeah, you. With the glasses. Yeah, come up to the front. And then they usually don't know what to do because they never gotten prayed for like that. They come up to the front, and then they face the audience. And I'll be like, hey, hey, dude, turn around toward us over here. We're going to pray for you. Can I pray for Can we pray for you? Is that okay? they would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll pray for him. And Pastor Aaron will move in her gift, her spiritual gift, and prophesy things that this guy, that she could have never known about him. And instantly, tears start rolling down his eyes. Why? Why? he feels the love of God he realized God's not just a concept it's not just a religion God is living, he is real he's not a God of the dead, he's a God of the living he still speaks he speaks through the Bible of course but he also speaks still he's got a voice and he knows your specific situations and she's speaking them out that's a powerful manifestation of God's love it's not either or y'all And when it comes to tongues, where churches try to forbid tongues, look at the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 14. Look at the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 39 and 40. The whole chapter, it argues for orderly worship. Okay, we get that. But then a lot of churches will say, you see that? And it needs to be orderly, so shut your mouths. No more tongues in the church. But check this out. Apostle Paul ends the chapter, just in case to clarify any confusion or any uh, conclusions you might have reached, he clarifies, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid. Everybody say, "Do do not forbid. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. A lot of people's ministry philosophy, tongues does not fit into orderly worship. But in the Apostle Paul's mind, tongues had an essential place in orderly worship. And if you want to hear a good message on tongues... Go on to the New Philly podcast. There's a message called Tongue Talking Church. I'm, not, I'm going to skip that part. All right, And I know tongues is a very misunderstood spiritual gift in the body of Christ. Sometimes you just need some good balanced teaching. Take it from somebody who actually operates in the gift. I wouldn't learn basketball from somebody who can't shoot a basketball. Who never played a day on a varsity team. If you're going to learn teaching about tongues, get it from somebody who actually exercises spiritual gifts. You know what I mean? By the way, I'm the one who preached that message. (laughs) It's called a tongue-talking church. All right? If you want to check that out, check out that message. I'm going to have to skip through that part. So, to be a spiritual person, spiritual gifts are a must. It is natural as breathing. And to the early church, I'm telling you right now, there was no other definition or expectation that they had about what it meant to be spiritual. To be spiritual meant to be mature, to be filled with the Spirit, and to operate in spiritual gifts. If these things weren't happening, they didn't define you as a spiritual believer. I'm telling you that right now. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 19. Go there. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, look at verse 1 through 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road, Acts chapter 19, through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Then he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, "Uh, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then, when Paul placed his hands on them, remember, impartation, Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Notice something really interesting. Today, when we preach the gospel, it's Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe in Jesus. If anyone would like to do that, throw up your hand right now. I'll lead you in a sinner's prayer. Everybody close your eyes. Everybody's going to repeat after me. Dear Lord Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Alright, if anyone pray that prayer, hallelujah. You are a born again Christian. Get into a good Bible based church and make Jesus number one in your life. Alright? That's the gospel message. But let me tell you the gospel message of the early church. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Anybody want to do that? Are oh, You want to do that? Alright. Well, let me tell you right now. After you get saved, we're going to baptize you in water. Other people are going to see it. And you're going to get wet. You okay with that? Alright. And then, they didn't stop there. They said, we have received the Holy Spirit with power at Pentecost. Would you like to receive that? All right, if you do, come forward. We'll lay hands on you and make sure that you receive this filling of the power of the Spirit. That was the gospel message. Today's gospel message, we missed two elements that were very key to early gospel preaching. We don't really water baptize people anymore. It becomes like a church membership issue. And second, we don't pray for people to get filled with the Holy Spirit. It's believe in Jesus. All right, now you've got a ticket to heaven. All right, goodbye. Good luck. All right. There's demons out there, by the way. But good luck. You got the Bible? All right, read it. Right. Here, here's, here's the early believers. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Now, I understand when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. But their definition of receive was not the definition that we think of when a person becomes born again because that's called the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. You get that automatically when you receive Christ. The Bible says, "Holy Spirit is th- a deposit inside of you guaranteeing what is to come, the eternal life." Right? The Holy Spirit indwelling you is a mark and a seal that you're a true Christian. And as a Bible believing reformed theologian, I believe you can never lose that salvation. Holy Spirit, once God gives you His Holy Spirit and you are saved, you persevere to the end no matter what. That's what I believe. You can believe something else. But that's what I believe. You can never lose your salvation. You can't get unsaved. The Bible asks, is the arm of the Lord too short to save? What, He does just a half job? I'm telling you right now, every time He saves somebody, the Bible says salvation belongs to God. He gives it to you as a gift. It don't matter even if you want to reject the gift. I don't think anyone goes to heaven kicking and screaming. But God loves you that much that even if you got deceived by all this new age spirituality, he will still take you to heaven because his love for you is that powerful. But anyway, that's, that's, not, that's not my message. <laughs> Gospel message back then include the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But you know what's happened? Is the Western church has rationalized the aspect of being spiritual out of the church. Do you know, I, I'm studying church history right now. Let me give you a quick quick overview of what happened in church history. New Testament church, powerful, signs, wonders, miracles, healings. Constantine, Roman emperor, has this vision, becomes supposedly a Christian But by the way, he wasn't. I don't think he was a real Christian. He believed in the Arian heresy. Okay, so maybe he was, and he was really deceived, or he's he's just not straight up. He wasn't a Christian. But anyway, what he did to institutionalize Christianity over Rome, it hurt Christianity. It didn't help it. It hurt it because you got politics, power, fame mixed in with Christianity and church leaders, and things started looking real funny real quick. All kinds of weird Roman gods and Roman traditions got mixed in with Christianity. Next thing you know, they're bowing down to Mary, bowing down to the saints, forgetting about the priesthood of all believers. Anyway, it got so bad, we hit a period called the Dark Ages, where people could not even read a Bible in their own language, because it was only in Latin, and only the priests knew Latin. So what happens? God raises up men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, and they start what's called the Reformation. And the Reformation was a restoration of truth. So truth gets recovered. The gospel gets recovered. And right after the Reformation happened, there's a lot of wars. A lot of wars. A lot of blood. Because Catholics and Protestants started killing each other. It was mostly Catholics killing Protestants, by the way. You should study your history. But there was a lot of Protestant killing as well. Uh, because they didn't like the Anabaptists. Uh, Mennonites. John, Pastor John's people. A lot of them got killed and slaughtered. Just for simply believing that they have to get baptized in full immersion. And uh, they also were pacifists. They didn't take up arms. For that, I can't blame them for doing what they did. But they shouldn't have killed y'all. Anyway, there's a lot of Protestant killing as well. Long story short, at the end of that, you know what happened? So many European believers got jaded. They were like, if Christianity is real, then why are they always killing each other? Why can't we just be moral without the theology? And right when people were getting that attitude, you know what happened? The Enlightenment period hit. Guys like Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, and, and two of them were strong Christians, by the way. They were strong Christians. But they started to use an enlightenment that God was giving them about the world around them. Some people call it the enlightenment. Other people call it the rationalist option. But rationalism starts to sink in. And then Satan took that rationalism and brought it into the hands of non-believing philosophers that took it and twisted it. And what do we have? Modernism. A period of time where people have morality without the theology. And then after that, you know, well, anyway, through the rationalist way, guess what happened? the spiritual aspect of Christianity was ripped out. I'm telling you right now, after the restoration of truth, the natural thing for to happen next is the restoration of power. The restoration of spirituality. But that never happened. You know why? Because of all these rationalist thinkers that attack Christianity and said, "You you know, I'm studying my New Testament class. These are evangelical scholars. They don't believe in the miracles. Isn't that profound? They don't believe in the miracles. They especially have a problem with the nature miracles. Like Jesus walking on water, feeding the 5,000. They think it was an illusion. Where there was like low tide that day. And the disciples thought Jesus was walking on water. But he was actually walking by the shore. Very speculative beliefs. But you know what? Some of our highest... Well-funded scholars, they believe this. What's happening? Their version of Christianity that they experience in their daily life, has been stripped out of spirituality. There's no spiritual dimension. There's no supernatural dimension. So how do they know and define God? It's a God that has no surprises. A God that is predictable. A boxable God. A controllable God. A tame God. A God that leaves you alone. As long as you get all the right facts together and you understand Christianity in your mind, He leaves you alone until you get to heaven. And what I'm telling you right now is God took the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Because do you know where the restoration of power started to happen? It started to happen in the ministries of Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley. Revival speakers... That will go around Europe and America, and they will preach. And sometimes they will preach the poorest of the poor. There are stories of coal miners that will be covered in coal and soot and whatever, and they will they will sit there while uh, D.L. Moody or Jonathan or or, or or John Wesley will preach the gospel to George Whitfield Oh, George Whitfield Oh, gangster. He will <laughs> preach the gospel, and there will be white streaks because tears were rolling down their faces. And they will believe. They believe the gospel. And once they believed the gospel, Holy Spirit was poured out. And there was shaking. There was quaking. And that's why these Puritan groups were called shakers and quakers. Do you guys know that? They kind of went a little crazy later on. And so you don't want to follow their uh, their beliefs. But their 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 groups were filled with the Holy Spirit in the very beginning. Their early fathers, they had they, they 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 were filled with the spirit. But I'm telling you right now, God started to pour out the restoration of power, the restoration of being spiritual. He poured it out among the, third, uh, the, among the poor, among the blue-collared. And the most famous, most easiest historical example of God doing this was in 1906 on Azusa Street in California through an African-American guy. preacher preached holy spirit fell and all these blue collar poor people they got filled with the holy spirit and out of azusa street we got the pentecostal denomination assemblies of god full gospel simbungwe one of the world's largest denomination of churches they don't have the best seminaries they're not the smartest But when it comes to spiritual gifts, they know what they're talking about. God took the poor, the uneducated, to shame the wise, the thinkers. But I'm telling you right now, we're living in a generation, we have no excuse. I know you guys all have a college education, but I'm telling you right now, you have no excuse. You have Twitter, you have Facebook, you have YouTube. Everything that's going on in the world around you is at your fingertips. God will hold you accountable for the version of Christianity you live out on the earth. I'm telling you right now, the only version of Christianity that God commends is a spiritual one. Not a natural one, but a spiritual one. I'm saying right now, what if? What if the outpouring of the Spirit, the moving of spiritual gifts, supernatural signs, wonders, powers, healings, prophecies, these types of things, they're not just happening among the Brazilians in Rio de Janeiro. It's not just happening among Africans in Nigeria. It's not just happening among the poor underground Chinese church network. But what if college-educated Western Christians They start getting set on on fire for God in this way. What if? What if those who have a college education and who have unprecedented access to resources and positions, what if they shift into a spiritual Christianity? How much more of an impact that the church will have on today's world? What if? What if the high places of government, entertainment, the arts... Education, philosophy, sports, business. What if all the high places are no longer taken up by the liberals, but by spiritual Christians? What if? Then maybe the systems of government will not permit human trafficking. Will not permit lax laws toward human rights. It will not permit... Corruption in businesses that's killing the economies of the world. What if spiritual Christians who have insight from God because they are connected with a God who is prophetic by nature. The Bible says God makes known the end from the beginning. God is a prophesying God. What if spiritual Christians are connected with this prophesying God and they make business, entrepreneurial decisions and risks that are led by the spirit of God. What if the Mark Zuckerbergs and Steve Jobs. They're overshadowed by a new generation of spiritual Christians. That have creative innovations. That blow Mark Zuckerberg's mind. Where we're, we're young people in you in here. You guys get up and you do a keynote address and speech. In front of thousands of people. And Mark Zuckerberg's in the front row clapping for you. Because he's like, "How did you come up with that?" <laughs> and you just wink to God and say, "It's all you, Lord." Hallelujah. Do you know George Washington Carver? You know, February is African American History Month. George Washington Carver he claimed, you know, did you know that he did not patent the thousands of inventions he made? Did you know that the uh, U.S. was going through an economic um, hardship because of uh, drought in certain crops? So he started turning toward peanuts. And he used peanuts and invented so many uses of the peanut. One of them being peanut butter. Hallelujah. <laughs> but also dyes for your clothing. So Gap and Old Navy can give you green shirts and purple shirts. And they stay purple after 10, 100 washes. You have George Washington Carver to think. But do you know he didn't patent anything? You know what, what? when they asked him, they interviewed him, why didn't you patent anything? You could have made thousands of dollars. He's like, well, I got all these things for free from God. How can I patent something that I got freely? Freely I receive, you got to freely give. That was his philosophy. Why? Because George Washington Carver is a picture of a spiritual Christian connected to a creator of the universe who is most creative of all. I mean, what if? So, just, I don't know what kind of Christianity that you have walked into this retreat with. But my encouragement, my exhortation, my prayer for you is that you shift into spiritual, biblical Christianity. And you stop, you get over your fears. You get over your doubts. You stop letting your mind enslave the rest of your Christian life. Stop serving the God of your mind The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Maybe you stop leaning on your own understanding and start believing that the things described in the Bible is normative for today. Did you know yesterday, the last two weeks in my seminary lecture, my professor, and I love my professor, I respect and honor my professor, but he taught what is commonly taught. That's why I say I don't agree with everything that Gordon Fee teaches. He was teaching from Gordon Fee's textbook, How to read the Bible for all it's worth. And he taught that that story that we read in Acts chapter 19 or 18, what was it? 19, that that story, he quoted that story to say the book of Acts is a genre of literature called narratives. And the author of this narrative, when you write the nature of a narrative, the nature of a narrative is not to teach doctrine, but it is to have a purposeful story with a purposeful plot and ending. And therefore, what we see in Acts 19 was never meant to be the normative standard of Christian experience for us today. Okay, and I sat there and I tried to swallow my spit (laughs) and keep my mouth shut because I was like, oh my goodness, No wonder our seminary graduating pastors, there is no spiritual element to their Christianity or ministry. Because they are taught within these seminary institutions and they don't have a mentor to tell them otherwise. They are taught that these things are no longer normative. That it was meant only for the early church. What is normative, they say, is most of Christian history. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things in Christian history that I don't want to make normative in my life. Especially killing Mennonites and Anabaptists. (laughs) A lot of things, stupid things Christians did in history. I don't want none of that to become my normative Christian behavior. But you know what I always will turn to? is what God did in Scripture. If God did it in Scripture, God, I want you to do it in my life. That's my basic philosophy. And I do not believe that violates any hermeneutic. or That does not violate any other scripture. Because God never said, I'm done doing it this way. To me, it sounds like he's been building up to do it even bigger ways than we even see it in here. I have to close your eyes right now. spiritual the Lord is looking for men and women of God that will stop forfeiting their inheritance and begin to walk in their true God given spiritual spiritual heritage men and women of God that are filled with the Holy Spirit operating in spiritual gifts and are walking in maturity. This is the definition of what the Bible tells us. It means to be spiritual. All right. I'm 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 just going to take about 10 minutes. I'm going to take about 10, 12 minutes. It's not going to go long. I'm going to ask some of the retreat leaders. Okay, retreat leaders that are on leadership. I want you to come up.